Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right. How are we? Um, Okay. Today... We are having a conversation about, like I said a few minutes ago, um, joy, happiness, um, a good life. What does it look like? How is it found? Um, what are the obstacles to it? Um, and so I'm going to start off with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into this passage. And uh, so let's take some moments and let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you are doing in our lives. We, we can't thank you enough for the blessings that you bestow upon us. I ask that right now that you would um, remove from our attention the distractions of our week. You would allow us to be present, fully present here, thinking about the things that are going on in this room, in this place, and in the spiritual realm around us, um, and not dwelling in the past, what happened yesterday or the week before or in the years before, and let us not be focusing right now on the future of what is coming and, and stressing us out. Let us just be here right now with you, knowing that there is a God looking upon us with absolute love uh, and that there is nothing we could do to be loved any more or any less by you. And as, I, uh, as we read this passage and as I talk about it, I ask that you would show us some things that we need to hear, that you would prick our hearts, that you would change us, that we would, uh, in, in communion, be reminded of your gospel and that it would prompt us to change some things about our life, even if it's just something small that it would just adjust the trajectory of our lives towards you. Be with me as I speak. Allow me to speak freely. Bring, bring to my mind all the things that I have studied. Let me be free of distraction and, and all of us free of distraction and let us be able to focus. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start right here. Whoever desires to love life and see good day, uh, who doesn't? Who doesn't desire to look at their life and say, well, that every single day, say that, that was a really good day. That was, that was a wonderful, fulfilling, joy-filled day. I will look upon today with happiness for the rest of my life. And, and who doesn't want every single day to be like this? Um, who doesn't want to have a good life? Who doesn't want to see good days? Um, Peter needed to have this conversation. He needed to put this, this, uh, this quote in here. I say quote because it's actually um, Peter reaching all the way back to King David in Psalm 34, and he takes a quote of David, and he sticks it in this, um, in this letter right after a massive passage about submission, about all the ways that, that we suffer and how we are supposed to respond to these things. And he sticks it in there as if to say, in all of your suffering, remember, the context of this whole book is Christians on the run for their lives, and him writing them a letter saying, yes, Nero's trying to kill you, but there's things you need to remember, okay? Okay. Um, the disciples knew what it was like to suffer. They knew what it was like to be arrested, thrown in prison, beaten, abused. Um, and yet you see them joy-filled. You see them singing in prison. You see them singing hymns and encouraging people and, and just being generally happy. And you wonder how this happens. And Peter gives us a glimpse of this. He reaches all the way back to King David, who wrote this when he was on the run for his life. 
And so the same passage encouraged the disciples. Now it encourages the Christians uh, who are under Nero, and now it is here encouraging us today. There's things we need to see. We need to reach all the way back to King David, and we need to open this up, and we need to contemplate what he's saying to us. Um, I think I want to uh, um, focus on some other things first, and we're going to come back to this passage. I first, I'm going to whisk you magically away with the wall of magic to Calcutta, India. Um, <laughs> Ooh, Calcutta. Calcutta, India. This is the slums of Calcutta. Um, it seems like a miserable place. Complete poverty. Houses made out of whatever people can find. Lots of uh, families and children living in these slums, picking every day through the garbage, looking for things that they can use to make money somehow. Um, if you search through these slums, you're going you're gonna to find a man named Monash. Uh, his last name, I believe, is pronounced Singhi. Not positive. Who knows? Um, his name is Monaj, and he uh, lives in the slums of Calcutta. Every day he wakes up, he gets on his bike, and he rides into the city. And in the city, he goes and he picks up his rickshaw. And uh, it's not the kind of rickshaw pulled behind a bike. It's the kind of rickshaw where you stand in front of it, and you hold the handles, and you run on foot. And uh, he wears sandals, flip-flops. He doesn't have shoes. And he's running, splashing through all kinds of things, manure and just puddles filled with filth. And it's hot and it's, his feet are burning. He, he, talks about, um, he talks about in his story that I read about him this week that he, in the summertime, um, it burns his feet right through his sandals. The heat is so intense. And it, it comes up off of the, the pavement and it's just really hot and it's kind of miserable. And in the wintertime, he doesn't actually mind the winter that much. It's, it's, over there it's called monsoon season. Uh, and it rains torrentially. And um, when this happens, people get in his rickshaw and he has a cover over it and he is soaked. But he knows that when he runs, he says, it's okay because when I run... I get a workout and I dry myself while I'm running. So that's nice. Um, and he regularly talked about how he is, he is constantly abused by the people riding behind him. They will hit him with canes, with things, throw things at him, cans at him. Um, especially if they're drunk, they'll abuse him. And he says he never turns around and looks at them and, and confronts them. He just lets it happen and he just keeps running because he knows if he, if he talks back to them, then the next day they're not going to get in his rickshaw. And he has to make the money. He's got to pay for his family. So he just goes with it. And he's okay with it. Now, um, in a recent study, this guy, Monage, was found to be um, every bit as happy as the average American. And this is fascinating. Every bit as happy as you and me. He's happy. Um, let me read some of the stuff that, that he wrote about here. Uh, he writes about his home. Here's his home. Um, and here's what he says. My home is good. One side is open and air flows into the room nicely. Plastic tarps cover the outside, but one side has a window. And during the monsoon season, we have some trouble with rain blowing inside, but except for this, we live well. When I return home in the afternoon, my son is sitting at the tea shop waiting for my return. And when he calls out to me, Baba, I am full of joy. When I see my child's face, I am very happy. I feel that I am not poor, but I am the richest person. Sometimes we eat only rice and salt, but we are still happy. My neighbors are good. We stay together, and that makes us happy. And we are all friends. This man is apparently every bit as happy as you and I. And his circumstances have nothing to do with that. It's something totally different. Now, I want to compare that and contrast that with Japan. Um, Japan, according to recent data, is the least happy of all wealthy industrialized nations. The least happy. Um, after World War II, there was a huge push 
to rebuild the nation because it had been utterly destroyed. Um, and the workforce was mobilized. And it was emphasized for decades upon decades and de- upon decades up until this period of time, um, efficiency above all else, material wealth, economic prosperity. These are the things we need to seek because it will bring happiness and joy to our country, which has been destroyed by the war. And so they're pursuing happiness, and they are pursuing it through economic prosperity. So there's, there's a contrast between each side. Minaj finds his happy, his happy, his happy, his joy through uh, his family, finding meaningful purpose in what he does to provide for his family. And Japan is seeking it through economic growth and prosperity. Now, studies have shown that Japan is the, the least happy of all, again, industrialized nations. Um, there's actually something happening where people are, thousands of people are literally dying in their offices at their desks. They work incredibly long hours, early in the morning to late in the evening, come home, sleep for only a few hours, get back up and do it again without break for a very long stretches of time. And people are dying. They actually, um, they gave it a word that's called karoshi. It means death by overworking. And so now they're actually putting up billboards around the city and in subways that are warning signs for the symptoms of karoshi. Warning signs that you, you are going to die at work. Um, so not only are they not finding happiness and a good life and good days, as Peter calls it, um, it's actually killing them. They're actually becoming miserable. And so this morning, I want to talk about the idea of happy. I, 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 want, I want to talk about happiness and joy and all of this. I, I want to um, look at what, what a lot of research has found. And I'm, um, I mean, first off, it's always been believed that you could measure depression, always been sort of believed for really about a thousand years now people have been studying what makes people sad and depressed and there's a sense that there's something measurable about you can find out how depressed people are um and there has never been a really big belief that you could find happiness that you can find i mean not find happiness but measure happiness in the human body that you can measure it um it's always been believed you can measure depression but not really happiness but that's kind of changed in the last few years and there's been a lot of studies opening up about how people find happiness and can it be measured and how is it that the human mind changes from depression to happiness? What causes it and what can we do about it? And what can we teach people about happiness and joy and meaningful and good life? Um, and so we found a lot of things. Um, and so here's some of the science and, and the research that people have found. Uh, it turns out 50% of your happiness is set by your genes. Um, a little depressing to hear, but about 50% of, of, of your happiness, half of your happiness comes from uh, your parents. It is kind of predetermined your temperament, your happiness, your kind of um, depression can be sort of um, genetic, if you will, but your temperament is kind of set by your genes, about 50% of it, um, and it's sort of like a dial. Um, it's sort of like it is set in one place. There's a set range of happiness that you kind of are set to experience, and this is only 50%. It's not the whole thing. Um, and we kind of have this idea that, just in our minds, we have this idea that, that if we were to actually achieve something, something you have in your brain, uh, like an award, a grant, a scholarship, or um, a book deal, a record deal, um, a publishing deal, just a good job, a better pay, a spouse, children, family, house, neighborhood, all of that, that if we can permanently change our position to get one of these things that somehow... It will permanently move our happiness meter. It will move it, and it will stay there. Um, 
studies have actually shown that that's not true, that it will spike for a period of time and then it'll just kind of settle back into your regular happiness as you adapt to your surroundings. Um, we also tend to believe that there are things that could happen that will devastate us, losses of family members or disease or whatever, and that if this happens, it's going to spike our, our, our happy meter the other way, that we're going to sort of lean towards depression and it's going to stay there. And we think that we're going to be permanently miserable if this happens in my life. And studies have shown that people actually tend to do okay. People tend to overestimate the joy they'll receive from something or the pain that they'll receive something. And again, the meter kind of resets to where it was, generally speaking. Um, and that people come through things and they end up looking back on suffering and tragedy with a sense of meaning and purpose. And like, here's what I learned. And they carry this with them sort of as um, a time of contemplation, time to look back upon and think about. Now, um, that's 50%. Now, there's another 10% that is set by your circumstances. We t- we, you would think in your brain that this would be a lot bigger, but it's really only 10%. That neighborhood, that job, that winning the lottery, that money, whatever you want, marriage, kids, that you think that it'll make you infinitely happy, but it really only moves your happiness meter by about 10%. Not a lot. Um, so that really tells us you can really live anywhere. You can live in the slums of Calcutta and actually be happy that moving out of the slums and into a big mansion isn't really going to change your happiness all that much. Um, and so there's that. That's 60% so far. And so there's another 40%, and, and this is the part that you have control over. There's about 40% of your happiness that is set by intentional activity, things that you choose to do. And there's a wide range of things that you can choose to do um, that will affect this either way. Now, they say with this 40%, people tend to make um, a choice towards one direction or the other, towards sort of the Calcutta side or the Japan side. Um, there's two different ways that people tend to pursue this last 40%, which way they're going to push it, towards happiness or sadness. Um, and the two ways that people pursue these things are either through extrinsic goals or intrinsic goals. And so I want to open these things up. This is what the research and the science has told us. And I want to talk about this. And I want to compare it with what Peter says and, uh, and actually what some of the Old Testament says as well. Um, first off, ec- extrinsic goals, money getting more of it. Image, being skinny and pretty and all that stuff, uh, just being beautiful in general. Status, having people look at you as somebody who is powerful, somebody who is knowledgeable. Um, people who, when you call them, they pick up on the first ring and, and they're like, look who emailed me. You'll never, believe, you'll never guess. And, or they want people to say, I met so-and-so and that's you. And they just want to have this status about them that people are... In, jealous of them. People want to be like them. And so this is the extrinsic goals. People tend to pursue this. A certain percentage of of people that want to move that 40%, they they pursue extrinsic goals. Now the other side, the other way you can go is intrinsic goals. Wholeness and growth, being content with the person that you are, Um, being able to just say, this is who I am, and people can look at it and see who I am, um, and I'm proud of who I am. And there's nothing I need to change. And it's self-confidence, personal growth. You know what you can do. You know what you're not good at. And you focus on your strengths. And you live in this way with sort of purpose. You feel like you were created to do something. You feel whole. Um, And the second one is doing good. This is uh, doing good as in relationally for other people. Um, Taking part in 
the building of your community around you, doing good things for other people, serving your community, fighting for justice, making sure that the system is working in a way that is fair and equitable for everyone. Um, and so that's, that's the second way. And the, and the third way is through relationships. And so studies have found that these three things, the last one being you want to have people that you love and you want to have people around you that love you and you can pour into them and they can pour into you. Meaningful relationships where you have sort of this journey together with people. And so these three things are the intrinsic goals that people chase. So the two ways people can go, extrinsic goals, intrinsic goals, um, the studies have shown that these things are at odds with each other, that people choose one or the other. Very few people are actually capable at all of doing both. Um, And so there is sort of a choice that you make. You have this 40% and you want to push a certain way, and 40% is a lot. I mean, if you're 40% happy in your set meter, I guess that you inherited genetically, that other 40% push you up to 80% happiness, uh, that's, that's huge. And so people are going to choose one of these. And, and what we found is that these two sets, extrinsic and intrinsic goals, are at, are at opposites, opposition to each other. Um, in other words, people oriented towards extrinsic goals are found to be less satisfied, less energized. They feel less vital to society. They feel like if they were to die, it wouldn't really matter or change anything. And they, they tend to actually feel like people who've been very successful feel like there's people who want them to die so that they can inherit what they have. And that's... That feels terrible. Um, I would imagine. I don't know. I never felt it. Um, They are are also found to be more depressed, more anxious, things like that. They're anxious. They have anxiety about the future. No matter how much they have, they worry that something's going to happen to take it away. And so there's this sense of holding on to everything. Um, And on the other side, people oriented towards the intrinsic goals have actually been found, studies have shown, that they are more satisfied, more joyful, less depressed. They have less anxiety about the future. They have a sense of of um, being anchored to life. They have a sense that even if bad things happen, they have friends and they're pouring into them and their friends will be there to take care of them. And so these two things are at odds with each other. The, the results that you get are opposite. And this is the two ways people tend to go. This is very similar to what, so there's an ancient book called Ecclesiastes. Um, traditionally, people say it was written by Solomon. There is some debate about that, whether or not it was actually King Solomon that wrote it. Or there's an ancient sort of form of, of um, artistic writing that the ancient Jews took part in um, where they sort of take the mindset of Solomon and, and write a book and say, I'm going to be King Solomon and I'm going to write a book about the things of God and God is inspiring me to say this. Um, the book itself, if you read it in the original language, it actually says it's written by a man named Koheleth. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter either way. If it was either way, it's writing from the perspective of King Solomon. Um, King Solomon's an interesting character, intensely rich. He's somebody who, um, at the beginning of his life, God said, hey, I want to give you, I'm just going to, I'm going to grant you sort of uh, whatever you ask for. Ask for something, I'll give it to you. And, and Solomon says, well, I, I want wisdom. I want wisdom. And with wisdom came wealth, prosperity, riches beyond compare. And so as he moved through his life, there comes a place where he's moving towards God. He's got wisdom. He's just a very godly guy. And the scales kind of tip and he gets wrapped up in material wealth and, and sex and owning things and slaves and all these things. And, and he tends to move away from God and finds unhappiness. But there's, 
So there's a, there's a journey where he starts off wanting the right things and ends up receiving the wrong things. And so there's this journey about his life, and, and he actually backs this here, the fact that when research tells us that this doesn't give us what we actually want out of it, uh, he says this. Uh, there we go. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Now, um, I'm going to pause here for a second. Um, this is coming from somebody who was intensely rich. Very, very rich. It's one thing for me to stand up here and say, people who have a lot of money are just miserable. I don't know. I've never had lots of money. So um, th- this guy has, and so we can take his journey and learn from it. So here's what he says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor, will, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. Verse 11, when, go- when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So he says, I, I, I was intensely rich, and here's what I've found. I've known a lot of rich people, and, and, and none of us are satisfied in our riches. Our riches are not what satisfies us. All, we just gather up a whole bunch of stuff, and we sit there, and we look at it, and we say, there it is. That's mine. Yay, there it is. Look, let me look at it. And eventually, it's not a lot of fun looking at things. I imagine at first your happiness meter spikes, and it kind of settles back down. You're like, well, I'm used to this now, and here we are. Um... And so Solomon backs this up. He backs up the fact that the sort of extrinsic journey didn't satisfy. That extra 40% he was trying to push, he went towards extrinsic and it didn't, it didn't do it. And so now we come to Peter, we come to today's passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, 10 through 11, um, and we see the other side. We see the intrinsic side. Um, and it starts off, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. And then it says, and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So he really lays out three sort of subjects here. I want to compare these subjects with the intrinsic goals of wholeness and growth, doing good, and relationship. The first one Peter says is actually keeps his lips from deceit. Um, Who is the kind of person that lies, has to lie? Who has to lie? It's the kind of person that has to hide who they are, what they've done. Um... They don't want to let people in. They have to hold up that image. They have to hold up like that. that they want you to see a certain side of them. And there's sides of them they, they don't want you to see. Why don't they want you to see them? Because they, they don't feel like they're whole. They feel like they're kind of broken. And they don't want people to see these things inside of them. Someone who is whole um, is confident. Someone who understands who they are in God Someone understands that God created me. I'm, I'm here with a purpose. Yes, I have flaws, but that's okay. God has bestowed grace upon me, and he has this reason for me to be here, and I will live to fulfill my purpose. Whatever it shall be, I will seek God, and I will find it. And this is somebody who is whole. This is somebody who is striving to grow. And let's look at the next one. Um, doing good, do good. It's the exact same thing. The second thing he says, do good. You want to have a good life? You want to grow, you want to have, look back and have good days, do good. Literally the same thing. Um, and do good, doing good is, we tend to, as, as Christians in the Christian culture, if you grew up in the Christian bubble, we tend to think doing good and being good means not sinning, not gossiping, not judging, not smoking, not sinning, I don't know, all that. Um, and so here you are, you're, I'm not a sinner, I don't do any of the things, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't hang out with those that do, okay? Um, and that's kind of stuff I heard when I was a kid. Um, And that makes you good because you didn't sin. 
That's actually not what the scriptures are talking about when it talks about good. Doing good is this relational connection with other people. You're caring for them. You're doing things for them. You're fighting for the things that God was fighting for, the things that the prophet stood up and said, you are ignoring these things and you need to do these things. When the Israelites were on this kick back, uh, back a long time ago in the Old Testament, there, there's, this, there's this sort of period of time where they're just really religious and they're giving all the sacrifices and they're singing the songs and they're doing everything they can and the prophets step up and says, I hate this. This is all a huge show. I hate this show. You are forgetting uh, God's love for the poor. You are forgetting justice. You are forgetting that there's people around you that are starving to death. You're not doing good. You're being good. And so Peter writes and says, it's not being good, it's doing good. It, it is the same thing that actually researchers have told us makes us happy. Um, if you ever study the health effects and, and the psychological effects of giving your money away, it's amazing. Um, people who give their money away are, are shown to be far, far happier. And there's several reasons for that. Um, one of them is you are, when you give your money away, specifically to things, to like organizations and groups or churches or whatever, you are affirming what they are doing. You, you're basically taking your money and saying, I like what they are doing in this world. I affirm that that is a good thing, that's good for people, it's good for our neighborhood, and I'm going to give to that. And so there is a sense in which you are taking part in it. You are responsible for it, for the good that is being done. And there is a sense of peace. Um, and another thing that it does is giving your money away, it, it releases you from the power of money. Money is always telling you, oh, I'm not enough. You, I need a little more of me. You need more of me. I should be, your bank account should be a little bigger. You're not secure yet. You're not secure yet. But when you actually take your money and you give it away, and you give to things that are good and taking part in society, that, that actually, um, it releases you of the power of money, of the desire to always be like, I need more. I've got to talk to my boss about another raise. Um, I need to change jobs again because I need more money. It releases you of that focus, and it, it helps you focus on your community and what you can do to help your community. Now, the third one, Peter says, is seek peace. Peace, um, last week, uh, two weeks ago, Chris, one of our elders, our newest elder with the new elder smell, um, he spoke on shalom. He talked about um, the rebuilding of, of Babylon, how the people were there to help Babylon, even though they were in captivity there. And he talked about peace and sh in the ancient Hebrew idea, which was shalom, which was Things being as they should be. Things being as they should be. Now, um, that's not the word that is used here. Here we're in the Greek, and it's, it's the word um, irene. And this word basically is a relational piece. It means nothing can come along that can disrupt sort of the flow of love and good energy between two people. That when bad things happen, we push back against them and we reconcile. And when one person walks away, we run and pull them back. And when one person... Um, says a rude thing, we absorb it and take it in and say it's okay, and we return with grace. This is, this is relational peace. Um, this is the exact thing that researchers have said brings us happiness, being able to maintain good, healthy relationships. People that have a, a really hard time with relationships and who are always fighting with people, their happiness levels drop dramatically. Their joy in life. They're more prone to depression. Um, and so the three things that Peter says here um, turns out are the same things that this multi-million dollar, um, multi-year study with hundreds and hundreds of scientists and researchers and psychologists around the world with lots of letters on the end of their name. They all came together and spent a whole bunch of money and found the exact same things that the ancient prophets found. 
the things Christians have been saying for 2,000 years and the Jews for 1,800 years before us. The same thing. That the pursuit of the extrinsic goals doesn't make you happy. Instead, it is community. It is love. It is the outpouring of yourself. The idea here, the entire idea, is that the pouring out of your life, not the taking in, is what the designer intended for you. And if you are you being used in the way that the designer designed you to be used, you are most effective and you are, you are fulfilling your purpose. And when you are fulfilling your purpose, you are happy. And so there needs to be this sort of conversation about, as well, along with this love. If all of this is centered around sort of love, pouring out love, and you're pouring out... Um, and we tend to today talk about love. If you ask people to define love, they say love is, it's an emotion. It's like, it's, it's good feelings towards somebody. It's really thinking highly of somebody. That's love. Love is not an emotion at all. Uh, the a- actually ancient word, the ancient idea in ancient Hebrew of love was not good feelings or looking at somebody highly. It had nothing to do with that. It was actually a physical act. It was giving oneself to so when you love someone, you are giving yourself to them. And this could be all kinds of levels. Your time. It's, it's whatever you possess. Your time. You, have, you, you possess time. So if you want to show somebody love in the ancient Hebrew sense, you're going to give them some of your time. You're going to give them some of your encouraging words, some of your thoughts. You're going to teach them the things you've learned. You're going to give them your hard work, and you're going to help them patch their roof, raise their cattle, watch their children, giving yourself to someone else, however it may be, that is an act of love. Now, the opposite of love um, is hate or repudiation. Um, Hate has become this thing that it is really didn't used to be the definition of it. Um, There's passages in Scripture where it says things like um, God hated them or um, or it tells people to hate people. And and we, we tend to think about that and we say, well, why would, I, why would I want to think terribly about it? I, I'm being told to just think the worst things possible about them. The actual idea, the ancient Hebrew idea for hate was to remove yourself from. Because in those days, your survival was based upon togetherness. It was not an economy like it is today. You needed other people to even live. Um, so when you repudiate somebody, you're basically removing yourself from them. So there are things that you hate, things that you don't like, things that you don't think are helpful, they're damaging to your family or your society, and so you don't do them. You remove yourself from them. You are, in an ancient Hebrew sense, you're hating those things. And so you're hating those things. I I want you to think about some of your actions now. When you remove yourself from a community of people, when you isolate yourself, are you loving them or are you hating them? You are hating them. Not in a sense of a mindset of like hate. You're actually physically hating, removing, repudiating, if you will. It's probably a better word to use. Um, But it's the same nonetheless. And so there are some questions we need to ask about ourselves. Um, I mean, first off, I think about Jesus. I think about what would, how would we define what God did? He was far from us, sort of, not really, but they, they had a view of him that was far from us. And so he moved into our world. He took upon our body. Um, he was healing people, spending time with them, teaching them. 
the acts of Jesus moving closer and closer and closer to us, I mean, at the beginning, it's sort of this ethereal sort of faraway sense, and then he tabernacled, and then the incarnation, and then as he comes in the form of flesh, what's he doing? He's always touching people and hugging people. It's like he can't get close enough to us. And then later, after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he sends his spirit. He just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Why? Because he's loving you. God is drawing himself closer to you. God wants to be so close to you. He can't get close enough to you. God loves you. When we are removing ourselves from God, what are we doing? We are repudiating, hating God. And so we need to sort of ask a question, are, are we loving and are we hating? What are we loving and hating? Think about the things in your life. Um, you have this 40% that you want to find happiness, you want to find uh, good days, you want to find uh, good life, you want joy. Um, and so you know you have this 40% to sort of toy around with and, 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 and you control. And so now I want you to sit back and I want you to think about like the last week that you were alive on this earth. What were you giving yourself to? What did you spend huge chunks of time doing? Staring at your phone? Maybe. Um, looking at pornography? Um, lusting after women who were not your wife? Um, wishing you had things you didn't have, working really hard to make a lot of money. Those are the things that if you are focusing on those things, you are loving those things. Those are the things you are actively loving. How much time did you spend in the spiritual disciplines this week? Moving closer to God. Um, And so you kind of look at your week and you say, what was I removing myself from? Those are the things that I was in a Hebrew sense hating. Now, what's interesting is when you love something, when you pour yourself out onto something, um, your mindset follows. It's not that you pour yourselves out on the things that you love because um, a lot of people love someone, they just don't treat them right. They want so badly to treat them a certain way, but they just don't. So you can like mentally, socially have affection for somebody and, and be actively sort of in a Hebrew sense hating them. But eventually, your mindset will follow your actions. I know lots of people who claimed love for God, and then over the years they were pouring themselves into things, loving things that were not of God's. And when you do this, you're turning your back on God and you're moving away from God. So now you're hating God and you're loving things, and eventually your mind changes and you love these things and you, and you hate God. And, and I, I can't count on 12 sets of hands how many people I know that have become atheists over the last decade, um, and it started with certain life choices, things that they were pouring themselves into and things that they were removing themselves from. It determines a trajectory for your life. What are you loving? What are you hating? And is that, if you were to play the tape forward, you were to fast forward the movie and fast forward like five years, if you keep doing that, what's it going to look like? Are those extrinsic goals? Because everyone throughout history, who is anyone that has studied this, tells you it's not going to make you happy. It's going to make you miserable. Prophets, apostles, Jesus, psychologists, scientists, they are all telling you what you are loving has the ability down the road to make you miserable or happy, what you are pouring yourself into, extrinsic or intrinsic. And so what is it also that you are removing yourself from? To love God is not to sit there and say, I love God. To love God is to pour yourself, move toward, give him more of you. Daily pouring yourself into that and removing yourself from the things that are not of God. That is what it means to love God. 
And so there is this sense in which, yes, uh, remember I talked about last week epigenosis, the idea of this is how we know God. It's, it's you know God through doing. Before, long before we had Bibles, the, before the printing press, people, this is the main way they learned about God. It's the word Paul uses to know God, epigenosis. It means you learn about God through doing. And as you take part in the grace and mercy and you love people and you forgive people, you come to find out um, some of the attributes of God are intensely true and they take root in your heart and your soul and there's this sanctification process where you come to know God more and more and more through doing what he is doing. And so when people oftentimes are struggling with doubt, I kind of oftentimes encourage them, stop reading, start doing. Start loving people. Start doing the things that God did, that Jesus did, that God wants us to do. And I think in that, instead of reading about God, take part in the gnosis. Why don't you take part in the epigenosis? And that is where God is found. That is where you will find him. And so we kind of need to look back over our week and we need to ask ourselves, what, what did I pour myself into this week? That's what I love. What did I remove myself from more and more and more? I was actively hating. My mind will follow that. And now, let, let's, if I fast forward this down the road a little ways, what am I going to find? These things I was pouring myself into, are they extrinsic? Am I filling myself up or am I pouring myself out? Filling yourself up brings about misery. Pouring yourself out brings about joy, intense joy and purpose and happiness. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. This is exactly what we find Jesus doing. Um, so I, this, this week, at some point, early in the morning, me and my wife are sitting on the couch, and she's reading something, and I'm reading something. I'm reading for the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, I'm, I like to read through the scriptures in different versions of the books, um, some of them paraphrases and stuff. And right now, I'm sort of reading through it in Eugene Peterson's The Message. Uh, I, I fully respect Eugene Peterson, the work that he did as a pastor. Um, I love the, his writings, his books. They're just profound to me. Um, and his memoirs, you should read those sometime. It's incredible, especially if you're looking at going into being a pastor or any kind of ministry. You should read his book called The Pastor. Um, anywho, he wrote a sort of translation of the Bible uh, called The Message. It's a paraphrase he wrote for his children. And um, he writes, he translates Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and I read this. I, I read it, and I stopped. I was like, hey, Sarah, listen to this. And I read her this, and we were just like, Wow. And it's, so it's, it's a way, so I gave you sort of the, the scope of Solomon's life, how he's chasing after God, and then he sort of walked away and chased after external things and became miserable. But right in the middle somewhere, he captured, he captured something, where he was chasing after the right things, and God had given him all the other things, and he didn't have to worry about them. And there's this moment where he just writes this in, in chapter 9, this piece that is beautiful. Listen to this. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all that you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it, and heartily. This is your last day and only chance at it. For there is neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you are most certainly headed. Love that passage. I want to blow it up, hang it on our wall. Like, wake up, read that, and let's go. Like, let's live today, okay? I want to get to the end of this day. I want to say I chased the right thing. I'd have that 40%, and it was all in towards intrinsic, and I poured myself out, and, and other people are happy, and I'm happy, and we're all just, let's put on some fancy scarves, like he says. Just <laughs> dress fun. and ha I love this guy. And so, 
I guess as we go to communion, what I want to talk about, I, I want you to think about, and what I want you to pray for and ask God to reveal to you is, is, is your time. What are you doing with it? That 40%, which way are you pushing it? How um, are you spending your time? And I want you to play that, play that tape forward, and I want you to fast forward, and I want you to see where it ends. And I want you to repent, and I'll repent with you. Because so often... We read it and we hear it that the extrinsic goals don't make you happy, money, power, fame, all that doesn't make you happy. But for some reason, we don't buy it. And we regularly are being distracted and the temptations pop up and, and we're like, I just want that right now. That's all I want right now. That'll make me happy. And it doesn't. Actually, it does the opposite. And so I want to think of Jesus. I want to ponder Jesus. And how he kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer to us. I picture Jesus in all of his suffering and all of his, the, the people, way people mocked him and all of that. I picture Jesus with a smile on his face. I picture Jesus just enjoying the pouring out of himself for the world. And one of the main reasons I picture this is because he told us this is how we find joy. I imagine as he was suffering, he was picturing all of the people, you and I, who will benefit from his sacrifice and his love and the joy of pouring himself out for us through the intense suffering, this dichotomy of just what was happening there. And the only response I can have is to pour myself out. And so let's take some time and let's pray. Let's talk to Jesus and take communion. Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, take communion with us. You don't have to be a member here or anything like that. Um... The table is open. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Be with us now as we take communion, as we remember what you did for us. And in remembrance of you and your life and the way you poured yourself out for us, remind us that there is a a huge piece of our life that we need to be pushing towards the things of you if we really are going to find what we are all looking for, if we are really going to live in the way that you designed us to live. Do that for us. Convict us. Push us. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. Take some time and uh, talk to Jesus.